Hi there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. As a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly, experts with deep knowledge and insight that can answer all of the questions I've ever had about their field. Today, we're chatting with Steve Olson. Steve Olson is a partner at O'Melveny & Myers. He is a global co-chair of the firm's white-collar defense and corporate investigations practice and a member of the firm's management committee. Steve also represents UCLA, Stanford, and other universities in connection with the athletic conference realignment matters that have reshaped the landscape of college sports. Steve, it's so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Catalina. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I love talking about this, this topic, so uh, anytime. So these past few years, Steve, there's been a lot of movement from college football teams realigning to different conferences. First, can you give us the big headline and your involvement in making that happen? And then we can kind of dig into the details a little bit. Sure. Um, if you, In actuality, there's been conference realignment since the beginning of college sports. It's just that the scale that is happening now, the pace and the scale is dramatically different. And it really started with Texas and Oklahoma and the more recent uh, version of this uh, going to the SEC. They're going to join the SEC next year. And that deal was done in, I think it was 2021. And, and that really got, uh, you know, got things going. I had the great honor and privilege of helping UCLA uh, on their move to the Big Ten. I was able to work with them and negotiating and uh, executing that deal. So that, that was a big one. They went with their longtime rival USC to the Big Ten. That'll happen next year. And then from there, the logjam really broke open. And you saw last summer, Colorado going to the Big 12 uh, conference, leaving the Pac-12. Pac you saw Washington and Oregon going to the Big Ten. You saw the, the corner schools, as they're called, uh, the Arizonas and Utah going to the Big 12. And it just, you know, it was it was crazy and, you know, shocked a lot of people. And then last summer, I had the opportunity to help Stanford, uh, my alma mater, by the way, on their move to the ACC. So again, a great privilege to uh, to be able to do that, to do that work. In terms of the bigger picture, why this is happening, it really, you know, it's a lot of things. It certainly includes money. The, the money in college sports is so much higher than uh, it, it, it's ever been in the past. So I think that is really where this in many ways started in the modern, the modern version of this realignment. And a lot of that has to do with the media contracts, right? This is a very new kind of space for me and something that I'm actively learning about, but media contracts play a really important role in that money, correct? They do. Uh, people love to watch college sports, in particular football. So football represents about 85% of the money in college sports, which is you know, a big number, obviously, and I think surprising to a lot of people. Men's and women's basketball would, would be the remaining, most of the remaining money. So, so that's, uh, yeah, the media rights are a big part of the, uh, of the revenue. What's interesting, though, is the rise of what I would call the Olympic sports. So men's and women's volleyball, tennis, swimming, 
water polo, so many other sports that you, we all see every four years in the Olympics are really gaining popularity. And so I think those two can be attractive for media. Uh, but yes, I would definitely say media is the major source of revenue. And the other sources would be sponsorship deals, um, ticket sales at stadiums. Uh, you know, some of these college football teams have these giant stadiums that, that, that routinely sell out. So that's a lot there too. But it's really the media deals and particularly the media deals for playoffs, college football playoffs, and then the March Madness basketball tournaments. And I'm in LA, you are as well, I believe. And so uh, we're seeing it here locally in a big way with USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten. What would prompt a university to say, well, we're no longer happy at the Pac-12, we're going to move to the Big Ten? What kind of um, incentive do they have to move there? Yeah, there are a lot of things that, that go into it. I think um, the media deal is part of it. The, the size of the conference and the prestige of the conference is another. One thing that when you're talking about a school like USC or UCLA or uh, some of the other schools I've mentioned, Washington, Stanford, Cal, they get some of the best recruits in the country, not just for football and basketball, but for all of their sports. And those student athletes, those men and women, they want to compete at the highest level. And that for them is a power five conference, which is you know, the top set of conferences. And so that, and some of those are perceived to be more of a national stage and others perhaps more regional. So I think all of that goes into it. But one of the things, you know, I mentioned money before, it's, it's not just the, the money for the, the football program. Yes, football is bringing in that money, but that money is then being used to fund all of the other uh, sport programs uh, very often, certainly in the big power five uh, conferences. So these athletic programs cost millions, in fact, tens of millions of dollars uh, to operate every year, uh, many tens as you get into the bigger schools. And so that, that costs a lot of money for all of those programs. Some of these schools play over 25 different sports programs. And if you want to do well, it takes a lot of money to hire the best coach, <clears throat> excuse me, the best coaches, the best trainers, to have the best facilities. It takes a real investment. And the, the revenue received from football really helps to pay for all of that. And Steve, you have kind of the privilege of actually being in the room when a lot of these negotiations are taking place, actually negotiating yourself, right? Talk to me about what it would be like to kind of be a fly on that wall, sitting into these conversations and, and, and kind of the motivations behind these conversations. Yeah, well, I won't talk about the um, confidential discussions that I had uh, on behalf of my clients, but just generally from my experience, I'll, I'll just comment on, on what I've observed uh, broadly with, with all of this that's happening right now. I, what I see is university leaders that are very focused on doing what is best for their student athletes. And there's been a lot of talk about the uh, added travel, for instance, that will go into some of these schools that are leaving what are traditionally regional conferences and joining, you know, national conferences. The Big Ten is now a national conference. The ACC's become one, too, with schools across both coasts. But there's a lot of care and consideration by the um, university leadership about what that will mean for the individual student athletes. How do we minimize that? And there are several ways um, to do that. 
one of the main things that schools are doing is they're not they're going to play their out of conference games much more locally than they did before so that they allow for travel to be for the in conference games that now are you know sometimes further away than they were before um, so if you do those various things the travel actually can get pretty minimized and for a lot of these sports it won't be a lot more travel than what they've done before some some uh, not not at all um, so there's all of that i think that was really interesting to hear about and, and see that that care and attention to these student athletes things about mental health for example there's um, been a lot of investment and in that issue um, helping student athletes uh, not just with their performance on the field but their performance in the classroom and their performance in life so you have tutors and and uh, these other professionals that come in there's just so many different considerations one of and then again like to be able to play on a national um, stage is, is really what all these student athletes really want and so interesting i feel like we often forget that right we're so caught up in the excitement of the football game and the in the playoffs and the championships and the bowls but we forget just just that they are also students that they have real responsibilities in the classroom right and um that's right they have to they have to balance all of this um things that you know professional athletes don't have to think about Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about what all these changes mean for the Pac-12 and what does it mean for Oregon and Washington State who are also kind of still in it? What does that kind of look like for them? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's challenging. And that was the situation, by the way, that Stanford and Cal found themselves in last summer. They were, you know, with Washington State and, and Oregon State as remaining schools in the, in, in the Pac-12 and, and obviously concerned about their their future. Listen, I, I have fond memories of the Pac-12. I mean, it's been a big part of my life and love of sports and that of my family. And I know I have so many friends that uh, care deeply about the Pac-12. It's unfortunate uh, how all of this came about. It, it really is. So we all, I think most people out there really want to see a new and vibrant and successful Pac-12, you know, continue on, continue on for many decades. So what's happening now is, as you said, it's just those two schools. And for next year, they've already announced that they will play uh, a certain set of games with the Mountain West Conference. So the Mountain West Conference is, the is one of what's called the Group of Five Conferences. And they happen to be pretty close there, as you would think, in the mountain region and in the Western region. So it's schools like San Diego State. Fresno State, for example, both of those have excellent football teams. And so they've worked out scheduling arrangements for next year with those schools. Now they'll have to add, get up to seven schools if they wanna stay as a power five conference. That's the minimum number. There's a two year grace period to achieve that. So I think there'll be a lot going on behind the scenes to, uh, to, to make those arrangements. If they can't, then I think those two schools, which you know, both excellent programs who have had a lot of success, including this year uh, in football, both of those will will look to join uh, other conferences. And I'm sure there are a lot that would that would like to have them. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a lot more movement um, in the coming in the coming years then. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is so a lot of people probably don't appreciate, but one of the hardest parts of um, not just college football, but frankly, any of these sport programs 
uh, is scheduling. And it, it really takes a long time. <laughs> it's very complicated. And it, I think it really is the impetus for why these conferences started in the first place, to be able to provide a, a group of schools that they would routinely get to uh, play against. And that forms rivalries and history and tradition. So with all the changes that are going on now, it adds a lot of pressure to simply find, you know, teams to play. And so the steps that Washington State and Oregon State took with the Mountain West was really to address that, that problem. And that was something that, you know, I think was in the minds of all of these schools who were switching conferences. Who are we going to be playing against? Are these the right kind of schools? Do these schools look like us? Are they research universities like we are? Are they private universities? Is there a good mix of both? You know, do they play successfully in the same sports that, that we compete in? I think those are all really important considerations um, that went into this. I would have never thought that, you know, whether they're research universities or private universities would matter at all. Could you give us a little insight into why that might matter? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it can be a, a cultural thing. I think culture matters and different conferences have different, I think, cultural reputations. I think that uh, those that, and, and some of that is regional, of course, but some of it can come down to, you know, the type of school and, you know, high academics, for example, is, is can be a consideration. Uh, you want you want student athletes that are in the same type of playing against other schools that really are in this uh, where they're in the same type of environment um, and the same, you know, academic requirements, the same opportunities. So it's I, I wouldn't say it's the the only thing, certainly, but it's something that I think schools look for. You want to be, you know, in the right family. <laughs> has to be a good fit. I totally get that. Now, we, we spoke about student athletes beforehand, and this is something that we've been talking about now over a few years, right? Supreme Court ruling in 2021 cleared the way for student athletes to make money off their name, image, likeness, NIL. Does that play a role in these discussions when universities are thinking of changing conferences? Does, does that even... Uh, come up? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up NIL because it's, it's, it's fascinating what's happening. I do think it had uh, an effect. For one thing, I mentioned recruiting, um, that, you know, the, the student athletes at these schools, they want to be playing against the best competition. And that's always been true because many of them want to go on to the next level, to the, to the pros. But I think it's also true now um, with NIL because they want to be on a stage. They want to be playing in the, you know, against the right competition on the, the right opponent, um, on, on a network that's going to get enough eyeballs that, uh, it's going to help their own image. And they now can profit, as you know, off of that image, as you said, the, uh, after the Supreme court case in Alston. So I think it does drive these decisions. It puts added pressure. If these schools want to uh, recruit the best and the brightest, and they need to be thinking about that and making sure that they're on uh, a national, on a conference that's really uh, playing on a national stage. The Alston case really did change a lot. It set a lot in motion. And it's, it, you know, that was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court. You think about what it, what it takes these days. We're such a divided country and often divided court, but it took this issue to bring really everyone on the court together to say that 
this notion of amateurism, which was previously uh, protecting this from, from happening, is, is really no longer valid. And um, it's, it's simply an unreasonable restraint on trade and on uh, these student athletes' uh, ability to profit from their sport. Uh, to to have these controls, so that really that really opened things up. And now some there are some efforts, right, to make these student athletes not just not just give them the ability to profit off their name, image, likeness, but to make them employees. Um, how would that maybe impact this discussion as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that is a much more fundamental change, and there's a it's a very controversial. There are certainly some student athletes that are in favor of it. In fact, there are cases out there right now where uh, current and former student athletes are on the plaintiff side of, of, of those cases. So they're seeking that status. But it's a really a different thing. And so you're not just talking about revenue here, but you're talking about the fundamental structure between the school and its students, you know, this employee-employer relationship. So. Uh, you're absolutely right. There are a number of things out there right now. There's um, the Johnson case, which is pending in the Third Circuit, and that is really the question as to whether whether these student athletes are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and whether they'd be entitled to wages. And, and the test is interesting. It's uh, does their the service that they are providing. The fundamental test here is the, is whether the service they are providing is more beneficial to them or to their school. And, you know, you could argue that both ways, but you can see how as the money, especially with football, gets more and more and more and more, and these schools are, you know, receiving payouts of millions and millions of dollars, that that could be decided in in favor of determining that these are student athletes. Similarly, there's a case actually out here in Los Angeles that was had hearings last month and will go on to additional hearings in the new year. That's na- the um, pending before the National Labor Relations Board and an administrative law judge. Similar question there as to um, whether uh, the, the plaintiffs in those cases are also athletes and the defendants are USC, the Pac-12, and uh, the NC2A. And the question is whether you know, again, whether they're athletes and the, the test there is a little different. It's does the sport generate revenue? Does, uh, are the ath- are the students compensated for that either by, you know, their room and their board or their tuition? Uh, and does the school or do the defendants uh, control the manner and means by which they perform? So for instance, regulating the number of practices or minim- minimum grade point averages. So all of that is um, going into those analysis. So you could see how it might break that way. Now, what would that mean? It would mean a fundamental change. And you would see you would see really a whole patchwork of state employment laws affecting this relationship. And, you know, it could be uh, it would be very it could be very, very difficult to uh, to manage this whole thing. And, you know, there are ramifications positive and negative for the student athlete, a, a big negative would be, uh, you know, you're an employee. And what does that mean? You know, would an employee, you know, let's just say you have a bad game. Could that could that student athlete be be terminated? Their position be terminated? You know, uh, there's all sorts of uh, considerations here that wouldn't 
arise without that change. Um, another big consideration is unionization and you know collective bargaining. So a lot of vested interests and uh, stakes here, but it really is a much more fundamental change than than simply the uh, name image likeness that we're seeing now. Totally. Do you think that that would also then kind of rearrange um, the conferences and and with with some universities? Do you think some universities would get rid of their football programs if that were the case? Yeah, I think what you could see happen is some schools saying we're out, we're done. Uh, this notion of having our our student athletes as employees is against fundamentally contrary uh, to what we we want and what we believe is best for our students. We, we, we want them to be just that, uh, student athletes and not, not employees. It really is a totally different thing and it becomes really a mini uh, pro league at that point. So let's just say you split football off. It, you know, it, it would rival uh, the NFL and, and um, you know, very different than what I think a lot of these schools really want for their for their student athletes. And you know, I think I think that there are different ways to handle that. Some some will just say we're we're going to leave Division One sports, drop down to a lower level. Some might spin off football. You know, it, it could go a lot of different ways, but it could easily create um, yes, different conferences uh, as a result. So it's it's really amazing, and it you know I think. Again, to, to end where we, um, to circle back to where we started, the, it's the popularity and the revenue um, generated from that popularity, from really the media rights, uh, is, is what's driving this. And you can see, you know, you mentioned um, USC and UCLA. Well, let's talk about another local phenomenon. And a couple of weeks, we're going to be hosting the, the Rose Bowl. I have my pen right here um, <laughs> with Michigan and Alabama. And the projections for viewership for that game are through the roof. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be one of the all-time uh, most-watched college football games, almost for sure. If you just look at the game that Michigan played against Ohio State to get into this, uh, to end up winning, leading to, to you know, their number one national ranking, eventually, uh, that that game alone had 19 million viewers. So you start to stack up a game like that in this Michigan-Alabama game with, you know, many different NFL games and the the, the college game is, is going to be more popular than some of them. That's remarkable. Well, it's a game I'll definitely be watching and I'm sure you're going to have a great time when you're there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Go Blue. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Catalina. I enjoyed it. You can find hundreds of other experts by visiting Rolly.ai. Connect with us on social media as well. I'm Catalina Villegas. Until next time.